0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you all here uh, this evening for a very special presentation we're going to have tonight. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to give a special uh, shout out and thank you to Penn State Harrisburg's Diversity and Educational Equity Committee. Um, uh, this event would not have happened without their uh, support of the bookstore. So I want to uh, just give them a thank. Can we give them a round of applause real quick? Thank you. Um, I have some shameless self-promotion to do, and then we'll get started with the event. Um, as of last week, we announced that we are hosting Salman Rushdie this December, if you have not heard. So um, books, uh, the book was just published last week. Books are available for purchase up at the cafe if you want to read the book beforehand. If you want to get a signed copy at the door, you can order it online. Um, so there's a couple of different options there, uh, but it's some very exciting news. Again, that's December 9th. It's a Monday. Uh, We also are hosting the Harrisburg Book Festival in October, October 3rd through the 6th. We have festival brochures that are just everywhere throughout the store. So um, up at the cafe counter, they're on some tables. But October 3rd through the 6th, all events are free and open to the public. Um, And then we're also going to have, during the festival, an outdoor tent sale. Uh, We're putting a tent sale uh, uh, across the street in the grass lot over there. 30 foot by 60 foot tent. We're thinking we can get 20,000 plus books in there priced at $3, $2, and $1. So um, lots of good deals, lots of visiting authors. It's gonna be a great uh, weekend of events. Um, So that's it, thanks for uh, uh, humoring me there. Uh, Now moving on to our event, I'm gonna welcome uh, Dr. Ilhan Kaye up to the stage right now and he's gonna introduce our speaker for this evening.
1: Hi everyone. I would like to welcome everyone and thank you for being here. Trump came to power by polarizing American society and scapegoating immigrants. He started with the travel ban and now we are witnessing with gross manipulation and distortion of immigration law and policies by the hands of the Trump administration. Therefore, Dr. Vedia's recent book, Banned Immigration Enforcement in the Time of Trump is very important and timely. Professor Shoba Sivaprasad Vadia is the Samuel Wise Faculty Scholar and Clinic Professor of Law at Penn State Law in University Park. Her research focuses on the role of persecutorial discretion in immigration law and intersections of race, national security, and immigration. She has published more than 30 law review articles, book chapters, and essays on immigration law. Vadia is the author of two books, Beyond Deportation, the role of persecutorial discretion in immigration cases, and the book we are here for tonight, Banned Immigration Enforcement in the Time of Trump. Wedia regularly authors opinion pieces on a range of immigration topics and has published such pieces in Los Angeles Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, The Hill, the blog for the US Supreme Court, the Harvard Law Review, American Constitution Society, American Immigration Council, and the Yale Journal on Regulations Notice and Comment. She has also served as an expert witness, lead author, or co-counsel in connection with Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, the Asylum Ban, and the Travel Ban. Prior to joining Penn State, Professor Rodia was the Deputy Director for Legal Affairs at the National Immigration Forum in Washington, D.C. Without further ado, please welcome Professor Badia. All
2: right, I'm going to stand on here so you can see me. (laughs) Wait, that's a little high. I think I'm going to just do this. Yeah. I am really honored to be here. I really want to thank Midtown Scholar Bookstore and the Diversity and Equity Committee of Penn State Harrisburg for such a warm welcome. Banning Muslims, shrinking refugee numbers, deporting cancer patients, the Trump administration has used discretion in extraordinary ways. But in America, no president is above the law. Courts have played an important check over the president's power. The people affected by immigration policy are worried about the future, and living through a chapter of American history that future generations, my grandchildren, will read about, document, and question. I document the story in band. This book binds together a close study of shifting immigration policy in the first 18 months of the Trump administration, includes a robust legal analysis based on 20 years of immigration law experience amassed, and is based on interviews I had with affected individuals and families, immigration attorneys, and former government officials. I am very grateful to those who opened up to me. Everyone is a priority. It all started in January 2017. The new White House unleashed two executive orders aimed at increasing the number of people who would be deported. Prioritization, is related to this idea that the government will choose who its highest targets are for removal. And this type of prioritization is necessary because the government has limited resources. According to one guideline from 2011, the government has resources to deport about 400,000 or less than 4% of the undocumented immigrant population. So choices have to be made. Who are we going to target for deportation? Who are we gonna leave alone? And historically, the choice of who to leave alone has been driven by compassion, has been driven by the equities that someone might have, like humanitarian needs, a serious medical illness, long-term residence in the United States, the presence of US citizen children. In the Trump administration, these priorities have really broadened so that the people who are targeted from removal include those who have these kinds of equities. So people with old removal orders, they are listed as a priority in the January 2017 executive order. But a lot of people with old removal orders have lived peacefully in the United States for decades under some type of prosecutorial discretion. And then there's what the administration is saying, right? So the former ICE head, Tom Homan, said, if you're in the country illegally, no population is off the table. We're looking for you. And these words have really translated into tragedy on the ground. One immigration advocate told me, everyone is a priority. It doesn't matter if you've been in the country for 20 years and you've never committed a crime and you're on your way to Sunday school, you are a priority. In the time of Trump, immigration enforcement has also extended to other branches of the government that do not normally do enforcement. So as one former INS official told me, you see an enforcement outlook at USCIS that would have never happened in the old INS days. People today can go in for a naturalization interview and come out in handcuffs. You would have never seen that at INS. And one of the reasons is not just that it was a different era or a different administration or anything else. It was that if people were eligible for benefits, the view was that they should be given the opportunity to have their cases reviewed. Related to how the Trump administration uses and thinks about discretion and priorities is their choice to deport DREAMers. DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is a policy announced in 2012 by former President Barack Obama. It enables certain people who came to the United States before the age of 16 are in school or graduated uh, have no serious criminal history to apply for and receive a type of prosecutorial discretion known as deferred action. 800,000 people have received this temporary protection. They're in our educational institutions, in our libraries, in our bookstores, um, as well as in our school. On September 5th, so almost two years ago, 2017, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that DACA would end. He called DACA recipients illegal aliens. He called the DACA policy unlawful and unconstitutional. I talked to many DACA recipients in connection with writing this book. One DACA recipient I spoke to used her lunch break to listen to Sessions' speech, and she said, just hearing everything that he said, knowing that that was such a lie, such an excuse, such bull, it was a pretty defeating, dehumanizing moment. Another DACA recipient spoke about the mental toll I think it's not so much the effect of the policies that are being enacted which are dangerous and poisonous to our democracy, but it's the psychological warfare that we are subjected to on a daily basis. We live in a time where the president can just pick up the phone, send out a tweet, and then you spend the whole day deciphering it. How bad is it? How bad isn't it? That's followed by really bad actors across all agencies that are trying to diminish any sort of real idea that this nation continues to be a nation of immigrants. Other long-term residents in the United States have been vulnerable to immigration enforcement in the time of Trump. Individuals who hold a type of protection called TPS, or temporary protected status, who come from places like El Salvador, Haiti, Honduras, have been at risk of losing their status despite having lived in the United States for many years. And this is an important point and chilling reminder that the administration is not just focused on those who lack papers. As described by one advocate, The government is actually taking people who have access to work authorization and have built their lives here and making them undocumented and deporting them. The Muslim ban. The Muslim ban also highlights how legal immigrants recognized under our immigration statute have been a target in the current administration. It all began in January 2017. The Trump administration issued an executive order that blocked entry for individuals from Muslim-majority countries. The executive order was eventually blocked in the courts. Then version number two came out. It, too, was blocked by the court. But version three, which was issued as a presidential proclamation in 2017, became operational in December of that year. And it is currently in effect. Currently, all immigrants from Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen are unable to be in the United States for no other reason than where they are from. Certain non-immigrants or temporary um, categories are also blocked from entering the United States. They include, for example, students from Syria, tourists from Iran, moms who wanna see their kids graduate from Penn State Harrisburg who can't be here because of the ban. There is a waiver process that exists in the proclamation, and it goes something like this. If you can show that you would suffer undue hardship if you can't enter, that your entry into the United States is in the national interest, and that your entry does not pose a national security threat, if you meet these things, then you may qualify for a waiver, even though you're subjected to the ban. During oral arguments, uh, when this case went to the Supreme Court, Justice Breyer questioned the Solicitor General. He was concerned about whether this waiver process was actually working or whether it was more like window dressing. And he referred to an affidavit that was submitted in conjunction with the case of a Yemeni girl with cerebral palsy who was denied a waiver. Uh, So what we know now, statistically, is that about 6% of people who are covered by the ban have been considered for a waiver. So that's a drop in the bucket to the thousands of people who are otherwise impacted by the ban. One attorney I spoke to described the case of an Iranian physician who had just given birth to twins, but whose parents could not travel to the United States. She said, to not even be able to hold their grandchildren, not support their kids who are doctors, it's hard. It's really, really hard on the community. She continued, the common thread I see among every single person that walks into my office is I need my mom because I'm gonna be in labor and I can't do this without her. Or, I'm the first person in my family to get a PhD, it would mean the world to my parents to be there at my graduation ceremony. Or, I'm in love, I'm getting married and I'm getting engaged and it is a huge moment and I would like my parents to meet my future husband. There are moments in our lives that we normally share with family graduations, birth of children, engagements, weddings, all of them destroyed for people because of the Muslim ban. This is quite similar to what I witnessed as an immigration attorney and also on campus. Penn State University is the fourth most affected university in the country by the first Muslim ban. So one of the pictures you see here in the book is a community forum we held right after the executive order was rolled out. And we had two overflow rooms with almost 300 people in central Pennsylvania. So that really just puts a spotlight on how the ban resonates and impacts uh, communities across America. So now I wanna talk about the most vulnerable or some of the most vulnerable, asylum seekers, parents, children, and most recently, children and parents who are in families with serious medical illnesses. Um, These are populations who have been targets of immigration enforcement in the time of Trump. So a few things about the choices in the current administration. There is no legal mandate to restrict the number of refugees who are admitted into the United States or to separate families from and children from their parents. So most of these choices are discretionary choices. And that's one recurring theme in this book is to just appreciate the power of discretion and the power of choice and the values we use to really inform those choices. So a refugee has a legal definition. It refers to somebody who has suffered persecution or would face persecution in the future because of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. That definition hasn't changed. What has changed are the policies and practices imposed by the Trump administration to make the process that much harder for asylum seekers and refugees. For fiscal year 2019, the Trump administration placed the ceiling on refugees at 30,000. That is the lowest number of refugees in the history of the Refugee Act of 1980. In 2018, the Trump administration issued a zero tolerance policy where parents who arrived at the border without papers or in between ports of entry would be prosecuted and separated from their children. And he said the following, I hate the children being taken away. The Democrats have to change their law. The statement is misleading. It was all over the press. Um, it was the justification provided by the administration for family separation. And it's misleading in a few ways. First, there is no statute no regulation or case law that requires family separation. And if you talk to most U.S. attorneys, they're not in the business of prosecuting every single person who crosses the border irregularly. Why? Because they too have limited resources, and they are more in the business of targeting their limited resources on their highest priorities. As described by one former INS official I interviewed, To define refugees as a national security threat to the country, we haven't thought that way for decades. Speedy deportation. Crucial to the conversation of discretion is not just who we target for deportation, but how we deport. On June 24th, 2018, President Trump tweeted, I had to include a tweet, We cannot allow all of these people to invade our country. When somebody comes in, we must immediately, uh, with no judge or court cases, bring them back from where they come from. Our system is a mockery to good immigration policy and law and order. This is a misleading statement in some ways. We already have a system where most people who are deported from the United States never see a courtroom. So our immigration statute has three separate programs for speedy removal, expedited removal, reinstatement, administrative removal. I won't get into the complexities about what each of these programs do. But even prior to the Trump administration, the majority of people deported never saw a courtroom. So the the fact that our administration wants to enhance and utilize these statutory authorities more should really raise important questions about someone's day in court and what America should look like. As told by one attorney I spoke to who handles speedy deportation cases, I don't think the public realizes how often speed deportation is actually used. And even in the system that Trump inherited, people were just regularly deprived of their due process rights. So where do we go from here? Uh, So, we may need a new administration for some of the recommendations that I make for the executive branch. It is an absolute necessity for this administration to rethink its enforcement priorities, to narrow them, and to reinstate a humane and compassionate prosecutorial discretion policy. Said one advocate I spoke to, Even setting aside being an advocate, being an American who pays taxes, I don't want them to be deporting moms and dads who own their homes and are working and haven't done anything criminal. I think it's a complete misuse of our resources to be deporting folks just because they have this paperwork problem from 20 years ago. Discretion is also essential to the rule of law. We talked earlier about laws and how discretion fits into what is lawful and what is unlawful. But another way to think about discretion is to think about how it is an inherent part of our legal system. So one former INS had told me, the meaning of the law has always included law and equity. That is the rule of law, fairness plus rules. One without the other is not the rule of law. There are also several congressional reforms that should be made. A lot of attention has been made to the courts. We see preliminary injunctions. We see temporary stops to policies by the administration. But the courts are not gonna save us. They're an important check. We certainly saw with the travel ban that the courts did not save us. Uh, Many of the solutions are long-term and will require an act of Congress. And so one solution is to legalize people who've been here for a long time. And that might include people who have TPS, have Another policy or protection called deferred enforced departure, um, or are living in the United States undocumented but have lived here for a long period of time. Many of the government officials I spoke to supported a legalization program for these populations. Said one former INS official, in terms of TPS, these are people who should have had legal status in the country. They should be part of a legalization program. It's just silly to try to round up and send home people who have been here 15, 20 years and are members of the community. What is served? And you know that's a question that could really be a symbol for this whole book. What is served um, for all, many of the choices um, that are made by the Trump administration? Another reform I suggest is to set legislation and limiting principles on the statutory sections that allowed the travel ban to happen in the first place. And right now in Congress there's a piece of legislation called the No Ban Act which would terminate the travel ban and set these limitations on the statute. So it's a great exercise in um, U.S. American government or civics of all three branches of government, right? The executive branch, announces a travel ban the court step in and say hey, this thing is lawful. And then Congress comes in and says, well, we gotta make what what was lawful and make that go away through legislation. So it's kind of an interesting way to look at the three branches. So let me close by saying that these are some, not all, of the the reforms I suggest. And ultimately, I, I want a humane immigration system. And I want a system that I am proud to leave behind for my own children and for the kind of America that, um, should, that we should be looking for. So I'm documenting ban, and I hope that the next chapter uh, leads to some of these reforms. Thank you so much. I look forward to your questions.
0: We're going to open up to an audience Q&A. If you have a question, just raise your hand, and I'll come around with a mic.
2: very mundane question uh, what does it mean in the band to be from if, if I was born in North Korea but smuggled into South Korea am I allowed into the United States so if you are traveling with a passport from a banned country or you were born in a banned country then you could be denied admission e- even though you're now a I- citizen of another country or so, if, if you are a dual national, so I can't speak specifically to the, to the smuggling situation. If you are a dual national with a country not covered by the ban, and you travel on the passport of the non-designated country, then you are exempt. So that is one category exempt from the ban.
3: Hello. My question is about your research. The current immigration situation is not suddenly out of the blue. It is a process of previous failures or mistakes or errors of previous generations of administrations, whatever they were. How do you see the bridge between previously done mistakes, to the current situation, and how you're looking at it till 2024 when Trump will finish his uh, time in his office?
2: Sure, that's a great question. I I can't say that I covered all of that in this thin book, which is really a snapshot in a lot of ways, Uh, but I do acknowledge the extent to which we have existing statutory structures or laws that have been put into place by previous administrations that allow a new administration to come in and take advantage of and apply those laws in ways that I might find to be inhumane or immoral. So a speedy deportation is one example of that. Uh, many of the programs in the statute were inherited by the Trump administration and now the current administration has the opportunity to maximize those programs to the fullest extent the ultimate correction though might be in congressional reform and so that that problem is really 30 years old right because the last time we had a real holistic you know upgrade to our immigration system was 1990 to some degree, 1986 some might say, and that's just not the 21st century if we compare it to any other program or policy where we're constantly looking at what needs to be changed or upgraded and so on.
3: We'll do one follow-up. You're talking about the current status but let's say, let's assume that Trump will be elected and will stay in his office till 2024. How you as a researcher and a scholar will see the current situation going another whatever four or five years from now?
2: Okay. So how do I see the future <laughs> if we have another Trump administration? I, I think it will be bleak, and I think you know, I also practice immigration law, and so I'm gonna do everything I can. Right? that the law allows me to, to protect those who are targets of the Trump administration and uh, continue to document. Uh, you know, I, I also think it's important for researchers and scholars to, to track every single thing that has taken place by way of policy change in this administration so that when a new administration comes in, there's a correction plan. And so there are, there are some who are thinking about that already too.
0: Question in the front, and then we'll go to the back. I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not a lawyer. But implied in your very good message, thank you, is a call to action. Other than go out at election time or prepare for elections, where would you direct me to to be able to act on your cause?
2: So there, there are a few pieces of legislation that are out there uh, that would help, for example, legalize people who have DACA or TPS or terminate the Muslim ban. So find out who's on those bills. Um, if your representative is not on those bills, maybe advocate for that. I've also been really impressed by the role of oversight and accountability. So, Members of Congress are also trying to hold the executive branch accountable um, by asking questions of the administration or sending letters and demanding statistics, for example, on who is getting a waiver under the ban and where they are from. Um, So paying attention to that accountability and message uh, is another place to go. And then just locally, you know, one silver lining in the time of Trump is the enormous uh, resilience and community in localities. I've seen that even in my own community in State College, Pennsylvania. So there are many non-legal ways to help it might be through interpreting. It might be driving somebody to a check-in. It might be helping uh, parents of a child who's, who are just um, arriving navigate through a school system that your own child has already navigated. Um, so I think there are a lot of interesting non-legal ways to play a role, too. I can't promise that I'd list all of them in the book.
0: <laughs> We've got a question in the back, then we'll go there.
3: Uh, hi. Uh, Trump had backed a, uh, a deal to trade Amnesty for Dreamers in exchange for the border wall. And the, only, and the only main difference between that and Reagan's deal of trading Amnesty for a border wall is that Trump would actually have the wall built. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the deal, was so, the deal was so favorable for the left that most of his base you know, had thought he had sold out. Mm-hmm. But then when the left rejected the deal, uh, there were there were uh, people pro- there were liberals protesting in Schumer and Pelosi's office, you know because you know this was a deal for full amnesty for all the Dreamers, um, and it made everyone on the right believe that the left doesn't deal in good faith. Um, what do you what do you think of the of Trump's offer to trade amnesty for the border wall?
2: So so my perspective on that experience was that it was a snapshot, and there were there was a lot of flip-flopping. Um, by the administration on support for DACA, lack of support for DACA, whether there was actually a deal, what that deal looked like. Uh, so I, I don't view that period as a sort of period of consistency on um, how things were going to unfold. It certainly highlights Um, the politics of immigration. I I would isolate DACA to some degree to say that the politics of DACA is a little less controversial because if we look at public opinion there's a lot of support um, across many constituencies for some type of a Dream Act um, or a deal on DACA. Unfortunately I think now we're at a place where we have a bill and we we have a bill that passed the house, but the likelihood of that making it through the finish line uh, is 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 tough um, because of the uh, political conflict.
0: Got a question in the third row?
2: Hi, um, what do you think is a humane? What do you think a humane immigration system would look like? Um, in other words, in your boldest conjecture, like your personal boldest conjecture, what do you think is feasible? Like you're like. You take reins of the legal system. I don't but know. Like, but what do you think is a feasible system? Um, yeah. Well, my it. boldest thought and my f- thought on feasibility are not necessarily the same thing, right? But if I were immigration czar, as I sometimes say in the classroom, I would really do a reboot on how discretion is used throughout the immigration system. I would get the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services out of the business of any type of enforcement. I would file far fewer charging documents in our immigration courts. I would make our immigration court system independent so we have real judges and not just black robes and no real judges. I would create a legislative reform that acknowledges who is here and contributing to the United States or has the type of equities that we should recognize legislatively, I would pay attention to who's coming in the future and filling in needs or in close family relationships and ensure that they have openings available through the law to be here in a lawful status. So those are some of the... Reforms um, I would recommend as Zarwadia. Question in the back.
0: Professor, I just, I'm curious how the legislative proposal that you see as necessary, given the ideological extremism, the rise of what some scholars, such as Robert Paxton, would say of fascism in the United States how you are going to see both at a legislative level, any form of coming together, as well as at the Supreme Court level, given the highly deferential status the executive branch now has
2: within the immigration context, especially after Hawaii v. Trump. Mm -hmm. So it looks like that's a two-part question. And so let me tackle first, how are we gonna deal with the politics of legalization. If I were to reframe of we're living in a country, we have 10.7 or so million undocumented immigrants, how are we gonna come together on a solution? Well, you know, I believe in solutions. So I think a lot of the, the rhetoric and the conversation is not solution oriented. And so I think when people are ready to talk about solutions, then we can actually just scratch off and um, take away the dust from a lot of bipartisan agreement that we have had historically. Um, In another lifetime, I worked very closely on bipartisan legislation known or coined as comprehensive immigration reform. Believe it or not, there was a time where we had Republicans and Democrats working together on proposals that met American needs. Because I think ultimately changing our immigration policy is not um, a partisan answer. I think it's, it's good for this nation on a variety of different levels. That's why at the nonprofit I was at, we had the Chamber of Commerce and civil rights organizations and the unions all on the same board. Because different voices come together on immigration because they want a pragmatic solution to um, the uh, current problem. I wouldn't call the immigration system broken, right? Because if I say that, then then, then it's hopeless, right? Why even have a conversation? And it's not solutions-oriented to call the system broken. In terms of the courts, okay, the courts are political. Um, there's always been deference um, by the executive. I mean, we have jurisprudence going back to the 19th century that allows deference from the uh, uh courts to the executive. Um, I don't think the story is over with the travel ban decision. I think that was one decision. Uh, whether that decision creates more limits remains to be seen.
0: We have time for just a couple more questions.
2: Thank you so much, Professor. You mentioned that um, Penn State Harrisburg or Penn State State College was the fourth institution, educational institution that had been affected by the ban. And I wanted to know if there, what, yeah, who, uh, which were the other three, and what um, disciplines have been mm-hmm. affected, and how do you think that will have an impact on, let's say, the economy of the United States or the mm-hmm. ways in which we think about education in the US? Sure, so importantly the the, f- the number four was not my empirical work. it was another study, um, and it was it was pretty broad, right affected by the ban. It wasn't broken down by, by discipline or campus, but we certainly have on all of our campuses students who are from all of the countries covered by the ban. Well, you know to me, the most striking And maybe absurd thing about the ban is that these are people who are in legal relationships, right? These are Yemenis who are married to US citizens. It doesn't get clearer than that, right, on who qualifies for a green card under our law, whose whose only reason for being blocked from entry is where they come from. How it trickles down into education, you know, I think policies like the travel ban, whether it affects students directly or not, has a chilling effect, right? Or has an indirect effect on who arrives in the United States. And even in the case of Iranians, Iranians are our largest sending country for students and scholars, including Fulbright residents and so on, uh, student, they were exempt under this ban. But if you actually look at the numbers of Iranian students who are arriving, there's been a dramatic drop because the proclamation did say there would be extra scrutiny and Iranians have always had a hard time. Uh, So I think it would be a tragedy for our educational institutions to lose out on the international talent we have at the faculty, staff, and student level across our universities. And I think Pennsylvania is a really good experiment for anyone who wants to study the impact of these policies on on educational institutions just given how large our educational base is.
0: So we're gonna close with just uh, one last question here and then we'll enter into the book signing.
1: Um, How about international law? What does it say about all those things happening, especially uh, mistreatment of uh, um, asylum seekers? Uh
2: So how much time do we have to talk about international law? But I'll give I'll give you the two-minute version. And that is for asylum and refugee law, there's a real interrelationship between international treaties and US domestic law. The United States has signed the UN protocol, which incorporates the Refugee Convention. So we have obligations um, for asylum and also to not return people to countries where their life or freedom would be threatened or where they would face torture, and Congress really formalized this by codifying in the statute in 1980 a framework for asylum and refugee law. So when you look at asylum in the immigration statute, you see that it, there's a huge inheritance from, from international law.
0: And now the last question for Throw.
1: Thank you. Actually, two quick questions. Uh, one of them is you said that we need real judges on immigration courts. Can you tell us how they are selected currently? <laughs> My second question is something that you have not mentioned, or some institution, the ACLU. How do you see their role in the last two 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 and a half years in all these struggles and all that? Do you think they have been as effective as
2: they could have? Thank you. All right. Those are big questions. So, yeah, maybe I was being, uh, showing my opinion there by saying we need real judges. But that actually is how I feel. Currently, immigration judges are employees of the Department of Justice. So their boss is the Attorney General of the United States. So they wear black robes. There's a regulation that says that they should make decisions independently. But the reality is there is a lot of pressure to be consistent with the policies and protocols of the Attorney General. Uh, Secondly, there is a rule in immigration law that allows the Attorney General to rewrite decisions that it doesn't like. Um, And we've seen that happen multiple times. So judges can make a decision, but if the Attorney General doesn't like it, that decision is rewritten and then applies to everyone. So those are a couple of reasons for why I think we need to take immigration judges out of the Justice Department and place them in an independent court, maybe an Article I court. They are um, appointed, you know, they apply for job positions, so the Department of Justice will post a job position for immigration judges. Uh, so it's, it's not a political appointment, so these, are, these can be long-term appointments, they can be short-term too. Historically, immigration judges were former trial attorneys at the old immigration agency called INS. The vast majority of judges were from that agency, so there was historically a very enforcement-oriented outlook um, in the adjudicatory role. That's changed a little bit um, over the years. To your ACLU question, I don't know that I'm qualified to measure the effectiveness of the ACLU. I will say they've played a really important role in serving as a check when the executive overreaches, Um, and we have seen that with a few of the cases that they've brought. You know, one really interesting challenge that they brought that I'm co counsel in an amicus brief on is around the so called asylum ban. And this is a rule that the president issued after this book was published, saying that if you arrive somewhere other than a port of entry, you are ineligible for asylum. Um, and that is in direct conflict with the immigration statute that says, Anybody can apply for asylum, regardless of how they entered in the United States. Um, And so ACLU immediately filed a lawsuit the day that rule came out and got a nationwide injunction in a northern California district court. I thought that was significant because it stopped the rule from being implemented. Now, I personally don't believe that every policy has the same litigation stance, right? Or a uh, litigation opportunity. But that's an example of where I thought the, the lawsuit with ACLU was very timely and appropriate.
0: Can we give one more round of applause for Dr. Wahia?
1: You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.